Hello, Strange Stories UK here again. Uh, This is Series 3, Episode 9. I said that I would be doing three uh, paranormal-type episodes uh, for Halloween in 2020, and this is the second one. I'm calling it Supernatural Suffolk, The Ruffham Mirage, and The Cursey Time Slip. Well, I've made a few previous podcasts on recognition, and this could be said to be another. Retrocognition can be best described simply as a time slip, when there is a sensation of viewing a scene from a different time period. There are a number of theories put forward for such experiences. They may be the result of a hoax or a prank. might be a genuine mistake made when someone has become confused. Maybe a hallucination caused by drugs or sleep deprivation or some other cause. There are other theories which seem a little bit more involved, such as stone tape theory or telepathic contact with the dead, electromagnetic effects in the physical environment, in other pseudo-scientific explanations, a time slip or a time warp, some type of parallel existence or parallel universe and so on. I don't intend to attempt any analysis on these theories. I did read The Old Straight Track by Alfred Watkins to try to understand ley lines, but this just seemed to raise more questions for me, so I'll just stick to the facts that are known and let you decide what was going on in these two cases. The first is called The Rougher Mirage, and the second, which occurred just 16 miles away, I've called The Cursey Time Slip. Well, I have in front of me at this moment a trading card produced by Brookbond T on PG Tips that I've had since I was a child. It's from a set called Unexplained Mysteries. This is number five, Cities in the Sky. It tells of how people that first settled in Alaska in the 19th century regularly saw an image of a city in the sky, which was later identified as Bristol. The image appeared every summer in the glacier of Mount Fairweather. The Alaskan Indians knew of this mirage before the settlers came, calling it City in the Clouds. This card shows a photograph of the mirage taken by Mr Willoughby in 1887. I think that it was some type of reflection um, or some type of photographic image captured due to weather conditions or something like that. I can't remember what the actual reason was. Anyhow, the point I'm trying to make is strange weird things do happen uh, that are difficult to explain or comprehend. There is a small village in Suffolk that's become locally well known for what is known as the the Ruffham Mirage. This is where a grand Georgian house is said to appear and vanish near a stretch of road between Bradford St George and Ruffham Green. According to my Arthur Mee book of Suffolk, Ruffham is known for some ancient Roman burial chambers where lead Roman coffins were discovered. The local church, there's a stone tomb of the previous lord of the manor, Roger Drury, and his wife Marjorie, who died in 1410, their feet resting on a stone dog to act as their guide in the kingdom of the dead. Anyhow, Over the years, several witnesses have reported a sudden appearance of a red brick mansion house at Ruffham 
and there are about 20 documented sightings. Most of these lack detail. There are six that allow some detail to allow some assessment. The house is said to be Georgian in style, with an elaborate garden which disappear on closer inspection. Well, the Georgian era refers to the reigns of the, the four King Georges, one, two, three, and four, between 1714 and 1830. The Georgian period means a period roughly between 1720 and 1840, which isn't very long ago in a place like Britain. A Georgian house would certainly not only be remembered, but would have been properly recorded by local historians. Investigations into local records of houses that may have been built on or near the site in the past and since been demolished have been made by uh, local historian Jean Dethridge. But these have proved inconclusive, although there are two possibilities of a house that may have existed there in the past, a house called Horncastle and another one called King's Hall House. Jean found an old legal document that referred to King's Hall House but it was not possible to locate precisely. Place names have changed, and even some of the locations cannot be verified. Jean, for example, said that Kings Hall Green has occupied three different locations since 1760. And this is all rather convincing, as even in a rural backwater such as Ruffham, there would have been people that would have recollections about such a house, uh, or the such a house being passed down to them. The case was reinvestigated in the 1970s by a local historian and psychic researcher. That was the late Leonard Aves. He was a man with extensive local knowledge and began his investigations as a total sceptic. He published a pamphlet on local history in 1978. This is Aves and Aves, 1978, which can be found in the records office at Bury St Edmunds. Leonard Aves was unable to find any local building which could have been the subject of a mistaken observation. When interviewed in the local newspaper, the Berry Free Press, in 1978, Leonard was quoted as saying, I've considered that it might have been a mirage, but I have some experiences of mirages and believe this apparition too large to be encompassed in one. At least I've never heard of a mirage that large in this country. Furthermore, for a mirage, there would have to be a house not too far away, and we cannot find any traces of one in, re in a reasonable distance. This doesn't coincide with my Brookbond card mirage, which was of buildings two and a half thousand miles away. Anyhow, Carl Grove, another local historian, and he's made intensive investigations into the Refund Mirage. He says that he's been investigating the case for years and with the aid of a previous local historian researcher such as Philip Sage and Chris Jensen Romer, the local records office have the 1815 roadmap that Tony Cornell, another well-known psychical researcher that we've mentioned in the past, this is the map that was consulted by Tony Cornell and it certainly does not show a house in the area where the mirage has been seen. But there's another map in the Bury St Edmunds record office that may show a property there in the 1780s. There certainly appears to be a coat of arms marking a substantial residence in roughly the right place. And 
Carl Groves, in his on-the-ground investigations, um, has led him to believe that at one time there was an avenue of trees and possibly a property on the spot. But since that time, it's been difficult, uh, difficult to gain access, as there's a traveller's caravan site right by the area, and they aren't apparently very welcoming. The location of the house sightings changes slightly in some accounts. Early 18th century maps show a large house in the location of most sightings, possibly called King's Hall, but it seems unlikely that there would be no records of a, a Georgian-style house, or that it wouldn't have been remembered in 1860. Fragments of green-yellow bricks have been found by researchers, suggesting a real house may have stood in the area where the ghost mansion appears. Everybody who has seen the Mirage says that the house design is Georgian, which would be 18th or 19th century. So this would rule out a Tudor or Elizabethan house, which could date back as far as the 15th century. If it goes back that far, it might have been lost to, uh, to memory. The first reported sighting of the Ruffin Mirage, or Ghost House, was said to be by Robert Palfrey in June 1860, when on a twilight evening he claimed to see a large red brick house suddenly appear with flower gardens. Amongst later sightings was Palfrey's great-grandson, James Cobbold, who may have been something of an unreliable witness. He claimed to see a three-storey Georgian house appear from nowhere as he was travelling in a pony and cart. This story was published in 1975 in Amateur Gardening magazine, then again under a pseudonym for East Anglia magazine in 1982. I'm not sure if James Cobbold was any relation to the Suffolk historian, the Reverend Richard Cobbold, Cobbold being a name associated with Suffolk. Local historian Leonard Aves contacted James Cobbold, resulting in Cobbold visiting him in early 1976. And together with a Captain D. Armstrong of Ruffham, they went to the spot at which Cobbold stated that he had seen the house. He identified it as being off Kingshall Street, which runs between Bradford St. George and Ruffham. It's in a field located nearly opposite a track called Gypsy Lane and nearly in line with the northern end of Colville's Grove, which is a small wood. Probably the best-known story regarding the phenomena goes back to 1926, when a young tutor called Ruth Wynne, who was the daughter of the new vicar, the Reverend Arthur Eckerskill Wynne, had recently moved to the village, and uh, Ruth and her ten-year-old pupil, Evelyn Allington were on a countryside ramble on a dull and damp October afternoon. They were walking through fields to look at the church in the neighbouring village of Bradford St George. Ruth and Evelyn had never taken this walk before and did not know the local landmarks, but they could see the church in the distance on their right. In 1926 it was possible to see Bradford St George from Ruffham, uh, as there was no so there was no chance of getting lost because of changes in the tree line it's not possible to do so today anyhow ruth and evelyn passed through a farmyard and onto a road and then came to a high wall of greenish yellow bricks alongside the road they walked along the road following the wall around a bend and they came across a tall wrought iron iron gate set into the wall 
From the gates, a drive led to a large house, which for the most part was blocked from view by tall trees. There were Georgian windows in the view of the house which they had from the gate. Ruth said that she found it odd that the owner of the house had not called upon her family, who, being the new vicar in the area, had met most people. Ruth then turned off the road to the right along a footpath towards the church at Bradford. On returning, they cut through the church, uh, through the churchyard into fields and towards home without returning to the road or the farmyard in the drizzling rain. When they were at home, they asked about the grand house that they'd seen, but nobody could offer any help. There was, they were told, no grand mansion in where they'd walked. Ruth and Evelyn did not take the same walk again until the following March, when she said she set off on a dull afternoon, although with good visibility. They walked through the farmyard, as they'd done before, and out onto the road. They both stopped and said to each other, Where's the wall? The road was now flanked with a ditch, and beyond was just bushes and trees. They followed the road around the bend, but there was no gate, and there was no house as they'd seen on their first trip. Closer inspection showed a pond and other small pools where the house had been, or had been seen. It was obvious that the land had not been disturbed for a long time, so a house could not have been demolished in the previous months. Ruth Wynne's experiences uh, were the subject of a 1926 radio programme and was included in a book by Sir Ernest Bevan in his 1938 book Apparitions and Haunted Houses. This popularised the village of Ruffham at the time. The BBC programme was broadcast by Sir Ernest Bennett, who was a member of the Society for Psychical Research, and he was making a series of programmes on supernatural topics. He interviewed Ruth and Evelyn, who confirmed that they had returned to the exact place where they had seen the vision. This apparently was important, as it indicated they had not got lost as many commentators on the incident said they must have got lost on unfamiliar countryside and were unable to find the place again. There has been some confusion as to exactly the route taken by the girls. Some recent research by Chris Jensen Romer suggests that the farmyard was Oak Farm and south of the farm is the wooded area known as Colville's Grove, also known as the Grove. It was here that Roma and his team found the brick and tile fragments consistent with the ruins of an old house. They also found an avenue of trees which indicated there must have been a path leading to something in the past. A map of Suffolk from 1783 shows no sign of Colville's Grove, indicating that it was planted after 1783. Roma suggests that a large house may have been built and destroyed at this time, or perhaps started and abandoned, but there are no sources to suggest that there was a house in this place in the past. There was a Reverend Colville, who owned the land at Ruffham, and in the early 19th century, so it's a reasonable assumption to say that Colville Grove was named after him. It is the Colville Grove area where most witnesses have claimed to have seen the mystery house phenomena. Carl Groves, who has done much research into the disappearing houses phenomena in the area, says that he visited Colville Grove in 2013 and reported that it was a densely wooded area and difficult to move around. 
Carl said that he found earth mounds and forms suggesting possible evidence of the ruins of a large building. And heading north, consistent with the earth mounds, there were two distinct avenues of trees indicating a driveway. He thought the older trees were about 200 years of age. The James Cobbold article that was printed in the Amateur Gardening magazine said that the sightings of a house in gardens in the vicinity of Colville's Grove were not uncommon in the early 20th century. Groves made some investigations into James Cobbold and found some faults with his recollections, although the sightings of the house were consistent with the Colville Grove location as viewed from Kings Hall Street. Romer also found that an 1837 map seemed to show the site of a building and a garden on the area. An earlier map showing enclosures from 1813 shows only a small wood in that place, Colville Grove. So if there had been a house there, it would have been built between 1813 and 1837, and then demolished before the map of 1860, when only the grove is shown. Investigator Carl Groves has a theory that the area has some kind of unusual energy, which causes the house to appear. He references the case of whirling vortexes, when people use a metal detector or dowsing rods in the area. He says he believes that the altered energy can enable people to see visions of the past. People would have probably seen the house and been unaware of the alleged phenomena. They would not be aware of its possible significance, as they didn't know the area. I won't bother listing the sightings here as they're all quite similar being seen from the road halfway across the field towards Colville Grove, consistent with the position of the house on the 1837 map. There have been similar stories told during the 20th century and into the present century. Indeed, in 2007, Jean Batram spoke to the East Anglian Daily Times about a similar experience when she and her husband Sidney had driven past a Georgian house on Kingshall Street. The couple looked at the house on, uh, looked out for the house on their return journey, but the house had disappeared. Against her husband's wishes, Jean reported the story to the East Anglian Daily Times, which published the story on the 10th of October 2007. She says that on a cool but sunny Sunday afternoon in February 2007, driving along Kingshall Street in Ruffham, Mrs. Batram, who was in her early 70s, and her husband both saw the Ruffham Mirage, only realising what it was on their return trip when the building was no longer there, and she had researched into her local library, reading Puttick's Ghosts of Suffolk, which devotes a chapter to the Ruffham Mirage. But Jean Bartram saw the uh, Batram saw the mirage on the Gypsy Lane side of Kings Hall Road. Local historian argued that there was evidence to suggest a house called Kings Hall had been on the side of Colville Grove, as we've already discussed in the 1837 map, although nothing was known about the building. But Jean had seen the image as a mirror image on the other side of Kings Hall Road, where Jean had seen the. Uh, this is where Jean had seen the mirage. Sage argues that running parallel with Kingshall Street beyond Colville Grove runs a narrow track, which was a path originally used by monks who were based at the Abbey at Bury St Edmunds. Sage claims that the track is an area subject to unusual events, such as strange lights and occurrences and figures. 
Gypsy Lane is another focus of strange events, according to Sage. Gypsy Lane, a track that runs off Kings Hall Street uh, on the opposite side of the road from Colville Grove. Local accounts being a little melodramatic, saying that horses and dogs would refuse to walk beyond a certain point on Gypsy Lane. But Sage continues that we know there's a certain amount of evidence from maps and physical remains of some buildings in the vicinity of the grove, or even inside it. There is evidence that a building once existed at the place indicated by Jean on the other side of the road uh, in Gypsy Lane. Sage shows that there's satellite imagery that clearly shows discoloration in the field beyond Gypsy Lane in precisely the location where Jean saw the mirage. So this mirage has now been seen on both sides of the road, Colville Road side and the Gypsy Lane side. Kings Hall Farm is to the north of Gypsy Lane, and it's the property of Ruffham Estates. In the period prior to 1950, the tenant farmer was Mr Edgar. In 1950, the tenancy passed to Sidney Bennett, and the day-to-day -day running was then in the hands of his nephew, John Bennett, and he remained there until 1972. Mr Edgar had never used mechanised plough, and when John Bennett commenced ploughing the area, which was shown discoloured on the aerial photograph, the satellite photograph, he dug up huge number of bricks. He used these bricks for reinforcing gates. The owner of the second bungalow on Gypsy Lane, there's two bungalows there, is called Ted Rose, and he laid the remainder of bricks on his front drive. Presumably the yellow coloration is visible today, coming from mortar fragments still in the field. Excuse me, I'm about to remove a dog from the room. Sorry about that. Always a mistake to have the dog in the room. He was asleep, but he's woken up and started scratching. So he's been removed. Going back to Phil Sage. Phil Sage is a local and he trained as a gamekeeper in the Ruffham area. And he thinks that Colville Grove is the source of a strange energy. Sage argues that almost all of the sightings of the Mirage have been near Colville Grove, or in the Gypsy Lane, or in the field between the Grove and the King's Hall Lane. Sage says that he is an insensitive, but his dogs refuse to enter Colville Grove, and there's no birdsong there, a wood which he likens to the Sleeping Beauty Wood, as it's so thorny and impenetrable. Not that this means anything, and any undisturbed wood in the area seemed to be impenetrable after about five years. Anyway, Sage says that family members have told him that a witch's coven used to meet at the grove. And Sage tells of bad experiences that he had at the grove when using a metal detector, when a vortex came out of the ground and swept past him. Later he asked a friend who was an experienced dowser to see if he could pick up any unusual energies at the grove and the metal dowsing rod was forced out of his hands as he tried to operate it. It was Sage's idea that the energy seemed to be coming out of the earth near Colville Grove, that persuaded Carl Grove to try some dowsing of which he claimed to have some basic knowledge. Grove, Carl Grove explained that dowsing is a traditional method of finding water in other minerals hidden, sometimes deeply underground. Dowsers employ a wide variety of aids, of which the best known are Y-shaped twigs or L-shaped wires and the pendulum. 
The theory is that these tools amplify slight unconscious movements made by the operator in response to some subtle st stimulus. Cardgrove continued that Phil Sage called him one day, saying that an article had just appeared in the magazine of the nearby Rushbrook Parish. It seems that one of these energy lines goes through Rushbrook Church, not far from Ruffham, and this is called the Mary Line. Moreover, the Mary Line continues through Woolpit and might go near or even through Colville Grove. The Michael Ley Line, which runs from St Michael's Mount in the southwest of England to the East Anglian coast, passes through many significant sites, such as Glastonbury and Bury St Edmunds. But at Avebury, they found a second line of energy, of a similar power to the Michael uh, Ley Line current, but it was a more gentle feminine quality. They called this one the Mary Line. In Bury St Edmunds, the lines approach each other, and at the point where the abbey is, the, or the abbey ruins are, the, the lines briefly kissed and then moved apart. Carl Grove thinks that it's probably the Michael line that runs past Colville Grove. Grove says that, in his view, our remote ancestors possessed a natural sensitivity to all kinds of energies. Lacking our sophisticated thinking abilities, in which modern cultures generates a continuous mental noise, there was nothing to cloud their perceptions. Nor was there any kind of cultural consensus, such as perceptions were foolish, or not scientifically acceptable, or even the work of the devil. They probably acquired no special tools to detect earth energies, which they no doubt regarded as a natural part of daily life, and nothing remarkable. Energies, energy streams that could be picked up by our ancestors, who had a better defined sixth sense. They must have realised that the energies could be intensified or utilised in various ways by erecting stone pillars at critical points, and that perhaps a circle of such stones would focus or concentrate the energy for particular purposes. Is it possible that through time slips associated with earth energies, as seems to be the case at Ruffham, that they were able to meet and talk to their long-dead ancestors? Interesting thought. Grove continues that the Ruffham has more unexplained phenomena than most other places. Phenomena such as globes of light often seen in a, in a house to the south of Colville's Grove and a strange arc of light often seen emerging from the ground in a field north of Kingshall Street. Grove also claims that there are powerful and often harmful earth energies in and around Colville Grove that can be detected by methods of dowsing and influence sensitive people. Symptoms that the sensitives complain of are feelings of nausea, dizziness, headaches, general weakness and disorientation. And these may persist for several hours. There have been strange localised vortex effects, apparitions and other phenomena in Gypsy Lane and effects upon animals, especially dogs and horses in Gypsy Lane and the Grove. And other, other time slip phenomena involve vanishing cars and a bicycle in the area of Blackthorn, north of Ruffham. I've not mentioned many of this phenomena, but it's possible to download the Ruffham Mystery by Carl Grove. Just search for that on Google. It covers all aspects of the case and similar cases around the world. And Carl attempts to give some theories uh, as to the causes of the mirages. Phil Sage gives two other examples of unusual events in the Ruffin area which are examined in some detail in Carl Grove's 
uh, rough and mystery PDF file. These are about a large black cat, about four feet long. I do intend to do a big cat podcast at some time. This being seen at Tinker's Wood near Gypsy Lane. In Sage, Sage says that gamekeepers report tracks of a large cat in nearby, nearby fields, which may have escaped from a private zoo. Sage also tells of a friend called Karen Murdoch, who, know, who knew somebody called Derek Green, also known as Bimbo, who witnessed the sky turn black and then it began to rain fish. However, this could well have a scientific explanation, as whirlwinds have been known to suck up fish and small animals and later deposit them, depending on weather conditions. Groves does make a comparative assessment of the phenomena at Ruffham in his PDF report, which we do not have time to examine here. Anyhow, that was the Ruffham Mirage. I urge you to download the Carl Grove document if you want to find out further information although it does tend to fly off in different directions. The other case I'd like to briefly examine is at the small Suffolk village of Kersey, just 60 miles south of Ruffham. It's a case that I think I briefly mentioned in passing in a previous podcast. For this case, we go back to October 1957, when three young Royal Navy cadets were in training. They were just 15 years old. There was William Lang from Scotland, Ray Baker from London, and Michael Crowley from Worcestershire. And they were taking part in an orienteering exercise on a Sunday morning. They were taking part in a map reading exercise that ought to have been straightforward. The idea was to navigate their way across four or five miles of countryside to a designated point, then return to base and report what they had seen which if all went to plan, should have been the picturesque Suffolk village of Kersey. All three were on top of the hill when they heard church bells from the village of Kersey, and they made their way down towards the village. As they approached, all three boys noticed how silent everything had become. They also noticed that the autumnal trees had green leaves, as though it was springtime. When they came closer to the village, they could no longer see smoking chimneys, and the breeze that had been with them that morning had stopped. They could no longer see the church spire. When they entered the village, they could only see timber-framed buildings. There were no cars, there were no street lamps or telephone wires. There were no signs of life. The boys began to look around, and they looked into the windows of a butcher shop. In this shop, there were no tables or counters. There were just two or three whole oxen carcasses, which had been skinned, and in places were quite green with age. There was a green painted door and windows with smallish glass panes, one at the front and one at the side, all rather dirty looking. As they looked through the window, in disbelief at the green and mouldy green carcasses, the general feeling certainly was of disbelief and unreality. Who would believe in 1957 that health authorities would allow such conditions? The cadets say that the lanes of the village were narrow, dusty, and had a strong brown earthen surface. A Kersey High Street was first serviced using pea shingle and tar fairly soon after the Second World War. So in 1957 there would have been a tarmacked road, not what the boys had seen, the earthen surface. The cadets said that there were just a few houses well distance before a stream or a water splash, but more afterwards. 
the right-hand side of the lane before the stream was empty of houses and occupied by forest trees. There was no sign of modern technology, no aerials, aerials or wires. Windows had small glass panes. They saw no furniture in the houses, and all the windows of the houses reflected black darkly except one whose interior wall showed a dull white colour. Certainly not of a modern day quality. Inside the house there was no furniture or curtain. The cadets say that they felt the houses in the village were bare of furniture, just empty cold showers, and they seemed uninhabited. The walls had been crudely whitewashed, but the rooms were empty. The boys could see no possessions, no furniture. They thought the rooms themselves appeared to be not of modern day quality. They said that they felt they were being watched, so they quickly exited the village. After leaving the village, they looked back and they saw smoke rising from the chimneys and the spire of the nearby church. When the cadets reported to the petty officers in charge of their training to confirm that they had reached the village that they were supposed to find just by checking their descriptions, Lang recalled they were rather sceptical when we told them of our odd experiences. They just laughed it off and agreed, <laughs> we'd seen Kersey all right. Others, of course, have suggested that Kersey simply looked old-fashioned to the three lads. That over the years, the otherworldliness had become something altogether more sinister in the retelling of the story. Two of the boys came from rural backgrounds, but the other, Ray Baker, was a cockney who was said to have assumed that that's how country folk lived at that time. Well, nothing happened for 30 years until Lang and Crowley, uh, they were both living in Australia at that time, talked by phone about the incident. Lang had always been troubled by it. Crowley had emerged, did not remember it as, in as much detail as his old friend, but he did think that something strange had happened. He recalled the silence, the lack of aerials and street lamps and the bizarre butcher's shop. That was enough to prompt Lang to write to the author of a book that he'd recently read, Andrew Mackenzie, who was a leading member of the Society of Cyclical Research, who had been appealing for case, mater uh, case materials in his book, Hauntings and Apparitions of 1982. Mackenzie was intrigued by Bill Lang's letter and recognised that it might describe a case of retrocognition, aka a time slip. Looking at the details, he thought it was possible that the three cadets had seen Kersey not as it was in 1957, but as it had been centuries earlier. A long correspondence, he and Lang exchanged letters for two years, and a foray into local libraries with the help of a historian from Kersey, helped confirm that view. In 1990, Lang flew to England, and the two men walked through the village, reliving the experience. What makes this case particularly interesting is the retrocognition is probably the rarest reported of psychical phenomena. There's only ever been a handful of cases, of which by far the most famous remains the Versailles incident of 1901, which I covered in a couple of podcasts in Series 2, Episodes 17 and 18, if you're interested. Mackenzie was puzzled by the fact that the church, which dates back to the 14th century, had not been visible during the possible time slip, and put forward the suggestion that the three had stumbled into Kersey shortly after the plague, or Black Death, had killed half of its population. The Black Death had reached its high point in the Stoa Valley near Kersey during April 1349, 
and anyone alive in the village at that time would silently watch rather than confront anyone during these lawless times. However, although glass was used from the 13th century in England, it was not in common usage until the 16th century. Kersey being such a rural location would probably not have used glass in a butcher's shop until at least the Tudor period in the 16th century. Mackenzie researched into the Kersey incident and he writes about it in his book on retrocognition, Adventures in Time, from 1997. Among the details that impressed Mackenzie most was the realisation that the house that Lang had identified as the butcher's shop which was a private residence in 1957, occupied by two tenants, Mrs Gillian Finch and Miss Gladys King, but it had been a butcher's shop before 1905. It had been a butcher's shop for as long as anybody could remember before that date. Written records went back to 1790, proving that it had been a butcher's shop, and it was probably a butcher's shop before then, as it was near a stream which would have been useful for washing away blood. After 1905, the shop was used as a general store and a sweet shop until about 1970, when it was converted into the private residence. Mackenzie was puzzled over the village church, as Lang noted that the party had not seen it after they descended into the village, and the silence fell, all of which seemed hard to explain. Since St Mary's Church, Kersey, dates to the 14th century, as we keep mentioning, and is a principal landmark in the district. But Mackenzie concluded that the cadets might have seen it as it had been in the aftermath of the Black Death, when the shell of the half-constructed church would have been hidden by trees. Lang and Crowley also recall the village buildings had glazed windows, which we've mentioned is a rarity in the Middle Ages. Mackenzie further suggests that most likely date was about 1420 when the church remained unfinished, but the village was growing rich from the wool trade with Europe. Kersey was well known for the cloth spun by its weavers. When Mackenzie and Lang met in 1990 and they travelled to Kersey in order to directly inspect the place, important to note here that Mackenzie devotes a long survey on documents, maps, historical records, library interviews regarding Kersey, whose origins date back to at least AD 990, around the time of the Norman Con- before the time of the Norman Conquest. The problem of the window glass not being available in the 14th century, when wooden shutters, all cloth or animal horn would have been used, has led to some people to suggest that the more likely time for Kersey to have been viewed in a time slip would have been in 1665, at the time of the plague, when the village may have been deserted. But during this time the church tower would have been visible and some of the houses would have been built in brick. It's unlikely to have been in the 19th century when Kersey would have reached peak population of nearly a thousand people, many more houses than the cadets saw, and there would have almost definitely been some human activity. There's also the objection that the three 15-year-old cadets are unreliable witnesses. Kersey has been called the most picturesque village in South Suffolk and has been used as a film location for historical programmes due to its timber frame buildings. It would have seemed unworldly to naive teenagers. Kersey was not linked to mains electricity until the early 1950s 
and due to protests from the Suffolk Preservation Society, wires and aerials had to be hidden from view, and overhead cables had to be hidden by buildings or buried underground. It was also pointed out that a medieval village would be unlikely to have a butcher's shop, which would normally only be found in towns after the Middle Ages. Meat was expensive for rural folk, who could not afford meat, and when animals were slaughtered in the village, meat had to be consumed at once, or was smoked or preserved by the villagers. It's possible that a village like Kersey could have supported a butcher's shop by the 17th century, but this is unlikely as meat would have probably been available in a weekly market nearby. So it seems a lot of the mystery could be explained away when applying logic to the experience of the cadets at Kersey. It's not known if Kersey is on any ley lines, and I can't find any records of any other unidentified phenomena being associated with the village. Maybe it was just the wild imaginations of three 15-year-old boys in an unfamiliar place. Anyhow, so concludes part two of the All Hallows' Eve podcasts on the paranormal. One more to go before the 31st of October, which will be on a haunted house. I'd like to thank you all for listening and thank Damselfly for the background music. And until next time, say goodbye. Goodbye and thank you.